Well, today we're going to make a little bit of a pivot, and we're going to return to the Gospel of John for today. Um, I last preached the Gospel of John on Sunday, November 15, 2020. So a while ago, we ended John chapter 17 after three, I think three and a half years in the Gospel of John going verse by verse. So um, if you've been here since August of 2017, you can honestly say you've, almost, you've gone through every verse of the Gospel of John up to John chapter 17. A lot of people can't make that statement. You should feel good about it. Today we're going to be picking up at John chapter 18. So if you open your Bibles into John chapter 18, and we'll be taking a look at the last few days of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry prior to the cross, to the cross, um, into the tomb, and when he physically rises and ascends into heaven. And today's text is going to deal with the arrest of Jesus Christ. Let me share something else with you. Next week is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And I was thinking to myself, I said, why is it that we don't celebrate Pentecost Sunday? I mean, when you look at momentous dates that have occurred into the church, right? The birth of the church would certainly be one, right? So next week, we're going to take a look at Pentecost Sunday. And um, I would encourage you very much so to really consider this week and be in prayer as we look at the birth of the church. You know, one of the biggest problems about the church is the church needs to go back to go forward. That's what we need to do. There's been a lot of things that have entered into the church over the years that are really aren't biblical. And if we really want to become a New Testament church, well, then we need to look at what a New Testament church looked like. So we want to take a look at that. So just be in prayer for next week's service as we take a look at Pentecost Sunday. But for this morning, we're in John chapter 18. What, and just to give you a little bit of context, the Lord had just finished the Passover meal. He had talked with his disciples, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, record the dialogue, the very intimate dialogue that the Lord had with his disciples. Very, very intimate. And some of the, some of the words that came out as he prepares them for his betrayal and his crucifixion. John 17, 1, these things Jesus spoke in lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may be glorified. The whole purpose of the cross, the whole purpose of him being uh, becoming a substitute for sin was that God would be glorified. He would be glorified as he pours his wrath out upon his only Son. He will be glorified as his Son willingly endures the wrath of God. He will be glorified in the crucifixion. He will be glorified as he enters the tomb. And God will be glorified as Jesus physically raises again from the dead. So in John 17, that's what Jesus is referring. The time has come to glorify the Son that the Son may glorify thee. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is indeed eternal life. In John 17, 11, I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name that thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we as one. Look at the love of Christ for his disciples as he prays on their behalf during this great hour of testing and tempting that is going to come upon the world. And then John 17, 17, Jesus prays this regarding his disciples. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. And Jesus, as I had mentioned, had just celebrated the Passover supper with them. And Jesus had told him that he was going to be portrayed and delivered into the hands of sinful men. And if you ever read the accounts in all of the Gospels about that betrayal, right? Did you ever notice that none of them said, Lord, is it Judas? What did they say? Is it me? Is it me? Am I going to be the one to betray you, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? 
But we know what does happen. The Lord does indeed confront Judas. And he tells him, go do what you got to do, do quickly. And Judas departs. And now Jesus is left with the eleven. And so after this, he leaves for Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, he secures our victory by fully and willingly submitting himself to the plan of the Father. He willingly and uh, volitionally submits himself completely and wholly to the will of the Father. And we preached on that on Good Friday service where Jesus secures our victory in the Garden of Gethsemane. And our text here in John 18 picks up from this point. And John is going to detail the arrest of Christ. And today we're going to see four virtues or four attributes of Jesus Christ in the text. And they are, number one, the amazing courage of Christ. Number two, the amazing power of Christ. Number three, the amazing love of Christ. And number four, the amazing obedience of Christ. And it is my expectation, it is my anticipation that in looking at this, we will see the wonders, the beauty, the splendor of our Savior. So let's look at the text. I'll read it through and then we'll go through the text. John 18, 1. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers of the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that they were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to him, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying, with, uh, betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And again, therefore he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If therefore you, have, you, uh, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way that the word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus, therefore, said to Peter, Put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So here is an eyewitness account by John who was actually there. And we're going to see that he integrates into the narrative a lot of details that only an eyewitness would know about. But a few things that stand out. We see that Jesus left. He comes down. He crosses over the ravine at Kidron, which is the Kidron Valley, and then starts going up the Mount of Olives. And at the base of the Mount of Olives is Gethsemane. And it's somewhere in that garden region where Jesus is going to be encountered, right? He just finished praying. We know from the other accounts that Jesus had just finished praying, and he said, Behold, the ones who come to seek me are at hand, right? And he could see the torches, and he could see the crowd that was coming. John also records that this was an area that Judas knew. So that means when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the three mandatory feasts, which would be Pentecost, would be the Feast of Booths, and the Passover, that it was very common for them to camp out on the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, you had the people, the richer people, could stay within the city with relatives or hotels, but the more needy of the people would probably camp out, camp out on the Mount of Olives. And somehow Jesus knew this place, would go to this place, where he would come and he would be able to meditate and have some quiet time. But because of previous times, Judas knew where to find him, Right? And so he says, now Judas was also betraying him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there with his disciples. I want to call your attention to verse 3 here. Because it says, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, 
I want to give you a sense of the crowd that came to arrest Christ. A Roman cohort consisted of 600 soldiers. 600 soldiers plus officers. Now, right in Jerusalem, right opposite the temple right there, there was Fort Antonia, which is where the Roman troops would occupy. It was their, their barracks, their base that was there. Now, I doubt that the Lord would take, uh, I doubt that the Romans would take all 600 soldiers to plead the fort, especially during the Passover where they're kind of doing crowd control and making sure that the zealots don't act up. But you've got to make an assumption that maybe they took about a third of them, about 200, maybe 250 of them, and they went to arrest Jesus along with the temple police. Now the temple police, what John refers to here, officers um, of the chief priests, this was a paramilitary force that reported to the high priest. And they were responsible for patrolling the temple ground. The temple ground was a big ground. And so they enforced laws. They did some of the duty collections at the temple. So they were responsible. They were kind of like the muscle of the high priest, right? And they were paramilitary. So they had armor, they had swords, they had knives, they had everything else that the Romans would have. As a matter of fact, these were the people that would actually make the arrests. So the Romans, the 200 Romans or so, are there for backup in case a riot breaks out. But it's really the officers of the, of the temple, the temple police that come. They come also with the chief priests and the Pharisees that, you know, they're dying to see Jesus get arrested. At least some of them are. So you've got to figure here that there are approximately anywhere on the, on the low end, 250 soldiers and paramilitary people to on the high end, maybe as much as 400, that come to arrest one man. And if they were intending to arrest his disciples, maybe 11 more. Get the picture here. They were obviously prepared that something was going to happen. They were obviously going to use, quote, overwhelming force to ensure that there is no revolt, which kind of tells you what they thought of Jesus. Not as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ and one who preaches peace. But they probably had him lumped in as some messianic weirdo who may resort to violence to break things out. And so here they come. An army, if you would, of people coming to arrest the Lord. And look at verse 4. In verse 4, we're going to see the amazing courage of Christ. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, who do you seek? I love this verse. The verse begins with the arresting party arriving in the garden. Now, John tells us this is taking place a few hundred feet below the temple. And King David this was a sign of another rebellion that had occurred at one point there. King David also was betrayed there when his son Absalom rebelled. And it was right there in that Kidron Valley, right there on the Mount of Olives, that King David flees as his own son now comes hunting for him for death. The other Gospels tell us it all begins when Judas betrays the Lord with a kiss. Matthew 26, 48 says this, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Mark 14, 44 says the same thing. Luke's Gospel tells us, But Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, I want to explain that kiss. There were customary kisses kisses that they would do at that time, customary greetings. There was one where they would kiss the hand, uh, kiss, you like that? Kiss the hand. Kiss the cheek, kiss the hand, and the hem of the garment as a sign of respect. But the kiss with which Judas betrays Jesus is a familiar kiss, meaning it's the kiss of a friend. The signal that Judas chose, I will betray him with the sign 
a friendship. Could you imagine the sting in Jesus' heart? Fully human, right? Fully God. Fully human, fully God. Could you imagine the sting in Jesus' heart? At that particular... You know, Judas would have been better to walk in and go, there he is. That's the one. But he goes up to him and he kisses him. And that kiss is supposed to say, I'm your friend. I love you. I respect you as a friend. And it is amazing that Judas would think nothing to, to betray the homage, the loyalty, the kindness that the Lord had shown to him, betraying him with the sign of friendship. And it's in this verse we see the amazing courage of Christ. Note the text where it says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth. Jesus, in his omniscience, knowing all things that were about to come, did not cower from what was about to happen. But he went forth. And he knew this was the kickoff to enduring the wrath of God against sin. And knowing what was about to transpire, Jesus does not run. He does not hide. He does not attempt to elude the people coming for him. But rather, he goes forth. And to go forth when he went to meet them. He went to confront them. I was thinking about this the other day, and I said to myself as I was thinking about this, aren't you glad that the Savior went forth? Aren't you glad that Christ went forth? He went forth to enter the world not in royalty, not in luxury, not in worldly authority, but humbly as a man. He went forth as a carpenter and lived 30 years of an ignominious life. We really have no record of Jesus in those 30 years. He went forth and he did not condemn the woman caught in the act of adultery and told her, go and sin no more. He went forth when everyone told blind Bartimaeus, be silent, and he went and he restored his sight. He went forth when he raised the young girl Tabitha and restored her to her mother. He went forth when he cast out devils. He went forth when he healed all types of diseases. He went forth when he calmed the seas. He went forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He went forth to the tomb of Lazarus and raised him after four days in the tomb. And what was the words that he said? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And now with amazing courage, he goes forth to complete his mission, to satisfy and obey the will of the Father. He goes forth to drink the cup of wrath of God, to make atonement for sin, so that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't you love that Jesus didn't hesitate? Don't you love that as he saw him coming and said, let me think about this, I, maybe there's an alternative way. Why? It was all reconciled in the Garden of Gethsemane when he kneeled and he prayed and he said, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup from me, but not as I will, but as thou wilt, O God. And now he calls on believers. He calls on believers in Christ that we are to go forth in the same name, in the same power, under the same anointing, that we are to go forth under the banner of the church and boldly declare that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is indeed the mission of the church. Not to have nice fellowship. It's not to have little parties. That's all byproduct. It's to come together to proclaim the name of Christ. 
As we started our prayers this morning, I said, I don't think people fully realize the hour that we're sitting in. I don't think Christians are fully taking heed in this country that there is coming a time when to follow Christ is going to cost many, many, many people. And now as believers in Christ, we need to sanctify ourselves in Christ. We need to throw everything at Christ and say, Lord, I will go follow. Church, if we go forth in the name of Christ under the unction of the Holy Spirit, filled with His presence, then someday someone will say, aren't you glad that Mark went forth? Aren't you glad that Rich went forth? Aren't you glad that that Janet went forth? Aren't you glad that Barbara went forth? They will say the same thing. Aren't you glad that they went forth in the name of the gospel? And as a result, I have eternal life. You know, if the church is not proclaiming the gospel, it's like having a whole city of people who want to start a new country or start a new place that cannot procreate. After a while, right, of being there, they're going to get old, and what's going to happen to the civilization? It's going to die. Right? We are called to continue that clarion cry, calling men and women to repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the primary mission of the church. And then to build believers up in the knowledge of Christ to propagate that ministry, to continue to go out there. And it may look many different ways. Some people go out and, you know, like my brother Rich goes out on UCF and he can encounter people one-on-one. But there are many, 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 many people with whom we have earned the right to proclaim the gospel because of our demonstrated affection, our demonstrated love. And we have a responsibility to proclaim that gospel. God is the one who does all the saving. God is the one who does all the sanctifying. God is the one who does all the convicting. But we have been given the glorious privilege to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to call your attention to the next question in verse 4. As we look at the amazing courage of Christ. Notice at the end of verse 4. We talked about Jesus knowing all things that they were coming, that He went forth. Not only did He went forth, but then He asked the question, Whom do you seek? Ah, That's a big question. Whom do you seek? And you know what? I think that needs to be asked of us in church. Who do you seek? Whom do you seek here in church? And if you're in church today, that the Holy Spirit asks the same question. Are you searching for the Jesus of fable? You know, the Jesus of love is love and He never has anything bad. Never speaks of judgment. Never speaks of the justice of God. Never tells anybody to repent because if you tell somebody to repent, you're judging them. Is it the Jesus of your own imagination? The Jesus of your own self-creation? You know that Jesus. My Jesus would never do that. You're absolutely right. The problem is your Jesus doesn't exist. There's only one. Are you looking for Jesus to feel good? Are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, the only sacrifice for sin, the only one who can cause you to be born again? Whom do you seek? I'm willing to bet that when Jesus asked that question of those arresting troops, they didn't understand how profound the question was. Now we get to some fun stuff, verses 5 and 6, where we see the amazing power of Christ. And the first thing I want to call your attention to is in verses 5 and 6, I think it's important for you to realize that Jesus here is the victim. He's the victim, right? He's the one who is gonna, that they're going to perpetrate all false charges against and beat him and do all these other different things in this group of agitators. 
right? And, to, and, and John begins to show us that Christ is in full control. So in verse 4 ends with him asking the question, whom do you seek? Verse 5, and they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And now Jesus says to him, I am. And look what happens. Jesus answers that question, I am. Using the same exact grammatical term used in Exodus 3.19. I am who I am sent me. Jesus responds with the name of God. And he says, I am. You'll notice that the he is in italics in your Bible. Means that it was, it was a variant that was added for clarification to the text. But it doesn't change the meaning. The Greek egoemi is still the same. I am who I am. The pre-existent one. The eternal one. Jesus answers with that question much like he did in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, verses 56 to 58, Jesus engages in a dialogue with the Pharisees. And it ends very bad. It ends with the Pharisees picking up stones to stone him. If you turn over to John chapter 8 real quick. In John chapter 8. It's a long chapter for context. But here's what happens. He's engaged in an argument with the Pharisees. And... The Pharisees are saying, where Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, verse 39, you do the deeds of your fathers. Right? And then in verse 40 he says, but as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This, this Abraham did not do. You're not doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, now we, um, they said to him, we were not born in fornication we have one Father, even God. There's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth from Him. And I come from God, for I have not even come on my own. And then in verse 48, if you go down there, the Jews say, Well, now you have a demon. You're a Samaritan. By the way, right there is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit when you accuse the works of God and you accuse the things of Christ to a demon. And by the way, this puts some of these people beyond redemption. I'm not going to get into that. If you want to know more about that, I'll be able to, to talk to you. If you go over to verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? This is the pivotal question in this dialogue. Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? Notice the response of Jesus. Surely, uh, verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. And if you have not come to know Him, but I know Him, and if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham, now notice this text here. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Notice the eternality of Christ here. The eternality of Christ. And now, notice the response of the Jews, and notice the response of Christ. The Jews therefore said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Now what happens when Jesus says truly, truly? Well, what did I tell you when we were going through John about that? 
When you see truly, truly, verily, verily, what should you think? Uh-oh, something really important is coming up because Jesus is emphasizing it. We say in Brooklyn this way, listen up, stupid. That's how we say it. It's not exactly the same. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego ebi. I am the pre-existent one. The exact same word that God used in Exodus when Moses says, Whom shall I say send me? Whom shall I say if I go back to the Israelites? Who shall I say? And the Lord said, You tell him I am whom I am has sent me. Now, did the Pharisees get the message? That's the question here. Did they get the message? Oh, they got the message. Because you see in verse 59, Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Why did they pick up stones? What was the penalty for blasphemy? Stoning. The law called if anybody were to blaspheme themselves and claim God, they were to be stones. Here are the guardians of the oral tradition, the guardians of the written tradition, and they pick up stones to stone him, and Jesus miraculously hides himself. Why? Because the plan of God was not that he would be stoned by the Pharisees. Now I'll go back to John 18. In response to their response of whom do you seek, they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said, I am. And notice this little eyewitness testimony included in there. Notice this. And Judas also was betraying him, who was betraying him, was standing with them. You get this picture here? John is calling out very clearly who is on the Lord's side, who is not on the Lord's side. And Judas, the betrayer, the one who kissed the Lord, the one who gave him a kiss of affection, the one who had endeared, the one who had, had spent three years with the Lord, and he was standing on the side of the betrayers. I often have wondered... Jesus had, uh, Judas had seen Jesus do every miracle possible, culminating in Lazarus, four days risen out of the grave, right? But he saw him cast out devils, and they fall into the pigs, and the pigs all went off the side of the cliff, right? He saw him heal, cast out demons, heal lepers. Did he not stop and contemplate? I think I'm on the wrong side here. Why not? Because the deceitfulness of sin is so powerful that even under the influence of sin and blinded by sin, reason tends to leave. We don't know why Judas did what he did. We do know this, he was a zealot. And a zealot were the modern day terrorists in Jerusalem. Zealots would walk in the courtyard with daggers up their sleeves and go into the crowded market if there was a Roman official or Roman soldier, get real close, stab them in the back, put it back up their sleeve, keep walking, the guy would collapse, nobody would ever know who did it. They were sworn to the overthrow of the Roman government and establishing an independent, sovereign Israel under the Davidic rule. Maybe he spent three years with Jesus and said, this isn't enough. I thought he would do more. I thought he would free us from Roman oppression. Listen, that's all speculation. We do know that what Judas did, he did of his own free will. And he betrayed the Lord. And after giving us this little eyewitness testimony, I want to show you the amazing, amazing power of God. Look at verse 6. When therefore he said to them, I am, it says they drew back and they fell to the ground. That's power. All he had to do was proclaim the name of God 
and those mighty soldiers, armed to the teeth, all fell to the ground. They all fell. Could you imagine the scene? Could you imagine the noise? All the armor, the spears, the knives, everything falling, you know, 250, maybe 350. We don't know how many exactly. All falling down simultaneous because Christ spoke the name of God. I am. And boom. And I often think, did Judas figure it out now? That he was on the wrong side? Having seen this demonstration of power? And why do I point that out? I point that out for one reason. And this is it. What a mighty God we indeed serve. Because our Lord has not revealed to us His full glory and might, we are not to tamper with nor think less of the Lord God and Jesus Christ. We are not to tamper. He is still the one. He is still the one who spoke the worlds into creation. This very same John in Revelation chapter 1 sees the resurrected Christ there walking among the seven lampstands. And what does the Bible say? He turns, he sees his blazing white hair, he sees his red eyes, he sees his feet as burnished bronze. And what does John say? I fell at his feet as dead. This is John. He hung out with him for three years, but the resurrected Christ, in full of his glory, full of the power, And John was slain at his feet. Oh, church, we're not to think that because we don't see him, because we don't have revelations of his glory today, that Christ is any less glorious, that Christ is any less magnificent, that Christ is any less spectacular than who he is. He is God, the very image of God. He has spoken and will speak again. And church, we cannot trifle with him. Please, let us not think less of him. Let Christ not be some historic figure that we think we love. Listen, listen to the words of the writers of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I want you to see this because this is important. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 26. The writer of Hebrews writes this, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Go down to verse 28. Therefore, since we receive the kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Now, what is, well, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, to understand that verse, we need to understand what is acceptable service. It is the offering of ourselves completely and wholly to Christ. To present ourselves holy and blameless before Christ. To be found in Christ and in the center of His will. Church, let us show gratitude by offering ourselves completely and wholly to Him. The Scriptures speak of the awesome power and the spoken Word of God. God spoke and the heavens were created. God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind so that Job repented in sackcloth and ashes. God spoke at the baptism of Jesus and it sounded like thunder. And Scripture tells us that in the final days, God will indeed yet speak again. Revelations 19.21 says this, Then the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Verses 5 and 6 of John 18 point to the amazing power of Christ. Look at verses 7 through 9 where we see the amazing love of Christ. Verse 7, it says again, they asked him, 
Whom do you seek? He answered, uh, they answered Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Jesus answers with an amazing portrait of love. You're coming for me? Great. Let these guys go. And by the way, he really wasn't asking. He was in full control of this entire situation. Everything was going to work according to the counsel and the will of God. And we know he wasn't, they, they didn't arrest the other disciples. We know that they didn't do it, even though Peter will try to make a run at this. We see the amazing love of God for those he loves. You know, John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What is Jesus doing right there? He is being the good shepherd, ready to lay his life down for the sheep. Oh, the amazing love of Christ. And then let's take a look at verses 10 and 11. And Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. And Jesus therefore said to Peter, Put the sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given, it, uh, given me. Shall I not drink it? Now, I've said to you time and time again, if there's anybody in Scripture I relate with, it's Peter. Peter. Act before you speak. Act before you think. Peter. Right? And I think there's a little twist here. There's a little irony in here. Right? And here we see the amazing obedience of Christ. He did not need Peter to fight his battles, but fully submitted to the plan of God. Notice what happens, right? The Lord gets, gets control of the situation. The Lord says, let these go. And Peter takes out his sword and he cuts off the servant of the high priest here, Malchus. What was going through Peter's mind? You know what I think, honestly, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be funny, I, I honestly believe this. I think Peter had the exact opposite effect of Judas. You see, Judas' sin blinded him to who Messiah was. But Peter had no doubt. Remember, Peter had just recently declared, who do men say that I am? And Peter gets up and he says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, good for you, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. A few minutes later, Jesus tells the disciples, right, hey, the Son of God is going to be betrayed and turned over to hands of sinful men, going to be crucified, going to be buried, but don't worry about it. I'm going, to raise on, I'm, going to, I'm going to rise on the third day. And Peter, ever the faithful servant, says, God forbid! Remember the response of Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. Now, we would think Peter was well-intentioned, right? He meant well, right? He meant well. He just executed poorly. I'll give him that. Here, Peter means well. But the execution is poor. And I think what was going through Peter's mind, hey, I've seen him cast out devils. I've seen him raise the dead. I've seen him feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I've seen him walk on water. I even walked on water myself, right? I've seen him heal lepers. I've seen him shut the mouth of people. This God can do anything. He can open the eyes of the blind. He can loose the tongue of the mute. He can cause the deaf to hear. There's nothing impossible. Man, all he had to do was say, I am he, and they fell. And I think Peter said, let's do it. And I think he drew that sword. He said, with Christ, all things are possible. I don't care if there's 300 guys. If it's me plus Christ, this is a done deal. I really believe that in my heart. I'll never prove it. I'll ask Peter on that great day of glory. But I think he did that. But he was outside the will of God. Outside the will of God. What was the will of God? To die. That Christ would be an atonement for sin. There's a very interesting thing here. At the Passover feast, 
there were two lambs. I think I may have shared this. Maybe it was on Bible study. But there were, there were two lambs that were brought. One was to be offered as a sacrifice. And that one was to be unblemished. Meaning that it had no defect. It was perfect. It had no stain. And this was a foreshadow of Christ who was going to come. The perfect Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But what they would do with that lamb is they would bring it to the high priest. And he was to be slaughtered. But he was to be slaughtered without resistance. The lamb was, you couldn't be bringing the lamb, and the lamb's going, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And then somebody come over and, and slaughter the lamb. The lamb had to be perfect, docile, at peace when the lamb was slaughtered. There was a second lamb that was taken. And the priest would come over to the second lamb and he would put his hand on the lamb's head and he would pronounce the sins of the people. And then that sheep would be taken outside the camp. Sent into the wilderness never to be seen from again. And that symbolized Christ taking our sins far away. If the Lord would have consented to Peter's action, if the Lord would have gave the rallying Christ, disciples, let's go get them! And if the Lord would have entered into that fray, He would never have fulfilled the type of the sacrificial lamb. The rebuke to Peter, in essence, is, goes beyond, you know, those who live by the sword are going to die. That's, that's, people miss that all the time. The rebuke to Peter is this. The will of God will be fulfilled. Put that thing away. We're not going. The prophecy of Isaiah says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And that he did not open his mouth. There was no protestation. Remember when he's being interrogated by Pilate? Pilate says, are you a king? Are you a king? He says, well, yeah, I'm a king. He said, but I'm not a king of this world. And he said, don't you think I could call my father and he'll send down 10,000 legions of angels and, and put this at rest once and for all? But he does not. He goes willingly. He goes obediently and i want to share something with you he did this as a human being this was human volitional will he submitted himself in obedience he submitted himself to the plan of god that was all secured in Gethsemane. It was all done when he finally left and the angels came to minister to him and strengthen him. And up from Gethsemane he went. And now as they come, Christ is at total peace knowing that indeed he is fulfilling the eternal plan of the Father. That redemption has now drawn nigh. That there's no more killing of lambs and bulls and goats or anything else because the shed blood of the Lamb of God would be a one and done for all who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus. The issue is, do you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus? That's the issue. All oh, the glory of the obedience of Christ the power of Christ, the love of Christ, the courage of Christ. This is the Christ whom we serve. And I'll be honest with you, it breaks my heart a little bit that sometimes people don't see it that way. That he's been relegated to a historical figure. That he has been rendered impotent spiritually. But this is the Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, that God has gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
We have just read of the amazing courage, love, and power, obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question really becomes this. What do we do with this information? Hebrews 12.3 tells us this. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. We are to consider Jesus' example so that as believers, we do not lose heart. The days, my friends, are going to get harder, more difficult. The cost for following Christ is going to increase. We more than likely will be ostracized by society. The cost will increase. We're seeing this happen in every Western nation that's out there. Every day I am talking to people in the UK, in France, in Chile, all over the Western world, as well as talking to people in South Africa, Cambodia. It is happening everywhere. Everywhere the cost to follow Christ is going up. And it is happening in the United States. Will we be faithful? Do we love Christ to that extent? Maybe there are some of those that have never come to true repentance and faith in Christ. Listen, you need to consider Christ. You need to consider His sinless obedience. His death on the cross wasn't one of a martyr, but rather to make atonement for sin that all who put their faith and trust in Him would be born again, would find new life in Christ. We need to consider His physical resurrection, not spiritual, His physical flesh and blood resurrection from the grave, just as He said. And in light of that, we need to turn from our self-righteousness and all of our works and turn to Christ and entrust yourself completely and wholly to Him. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to You this day, Lord, may the Word of God speak. May Christ increase and may everything else decrease. And Father, Lord God, that of those of us here, that we will say, I will follow, I will follow, Lord. That knowing and hearing of the things that Christ did for those whom He loved spurs us to greatest, greater fidelity, greater faith. As William Carey said, expect thank great things from God attempt great things for God. May we, Lord God, attempt great things for God. And if any here know not the Savior, Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would convict them and that they would turn from their sins and turn to Christ and cry out, God, save me lest I die. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.